Father, we thank you for your Son. I thank you, Father God, that you, you loved us so much that you sent him to die for us. And I thank you, Father God, that there is absolutely nothing that I can do or any of us can do to be loved by you more. Your love for us is complete and total and awesome. I thank you, Father God, that you've also placed us in the church as you've seen fit. And I ask, Father God, that you would remind us that our fellowship is because of what your Son has done. Thank you, Father God, for this time this morning. And may the words that I speak this morning be yours, not mine, Father. In Christ's name, amen. If you were here last week, and if, and if you weren't, you can go back and you can listen to it. We, we talked about fellowship as a part of living as the church. And fellowship, it really means a common partnership and shared participation. It's a common life together. And we, we celebrated communion last week, and we're going to celebrate communion again this week. And I hope you remember that that word communion, actually, if you look at the Latin behind it, it means fellowship. So that's an important part of our fellowship. This is also part of what we do as fellowship, is gathering together to, to worship together, to, to see one another, to greet one another, to, to sing together. And because our life has been purchased by the blood of Jesus, our identity as Christians includes being permanently connected to the body of Christ. Body of Christ, church, they're synonymous. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 13 and 14. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The human body is the metaphor. And, and if you've been, you know, the medical people know this even better than, than most of us, but the body is a unique metaphor. It's unique. It, it's used by Paul to to give the identity to the church, and it paints an image of shared participation. And when we understand the human body, it's amazing. This thing that we walk around in all the time, it's, um, it's incredibly complex with interrelated systems. I worked in the mortuary for two years. It was also the county coroner's office. And through that, I got to, I got to be right there at the table through two full autopsies. And I know that sounds kind of gross, but I tell you what, that has solidified this metaphor to an extent that is just incredible. Because inside of us are these complex, diverse systems that are perfectly joined together in unparalleled harmony. If the body is divided, the part that is separated is unable to function on its own and dies. And the loss of one part, no matter how small, affects the other parts. And those of us who have, who have gone through things, you know, some of us are still recovering from surgeries and whatever. Anytime our body doesn't function right, that unity, that, that incredible thing that God has done, isn't working. 
So just as our physical body needs each part functioning and participating to be healthy, the church needs each person connected and participating. And I am very, very certain that not participating in the life of the church is extremely unbiblical and it damages the health of the, and witness of the church. It is the greatest cause for the weakness of the church. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4 that every believer is a minister to the body of Christ. Not only to the body of Christ, but with the body of Christ. And every follower of Christ is to serve the body. I want us to look today... So, so originally I, I went, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And, and I kept getting resistance. So let's go someplace else. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. And we'll begin in verse 7. We're going to go through this passage about serving in the church. Ephesians 4, 7. But, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, let's, let's set this up a little bit. At the moment of salvation, each believer is given a measure of grace by Christ. You didn't ask for it. It's not your choice in, in any way, shape, or form. You have, you've made this decision for Christ, and Christ has worked in you, and you receive a gift. This measure of Christ's gift assures us that there is a divine purpose for each of us in the body of Christ. No one who actually is a follower of Christ and believes in Jesus can say, no, I'm not really needed by the body. This is not by chance. It's not by some random selection. Your place in the body of Christ is God's perfect plan and His design. God gives grace to us, not because of our achievements, our worth, or because we've been exceptionally obedient to God's laws. God gives gifts to us based solely on His grace and His plan and His sovereign choice. The different gifts that are listed in Scripture... We sometimes make a big deal out of those, but those different gifts are given to individual believers and they are given based on one thing, the will of Christ. It's a decision of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit works those out. And I believe that that's all directed by the head of the body, Jesus. Let's go on. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended. What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He, he, he who ascend, descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, <clears throat> Excuse me, that he might fill all things. This is one of those places where you, you start a section of scripture and you're going, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, where did this come from? And, and that's one of those places where you need to stop and you need to go, okay, why is this here? And it's here for a very important reason. Paul is describing Christ's triumphant res resurrection and ascension. He's reminding the readers that Jesus Christ is totally, completely victorious. And Paul's imagery that he uses would have been familiar to the people that were reading. This is, this is the imagery of a victorious general 
And those generals, when they were victorious, they had a practice of giving gifts to their church. Everyone would have understood that culturally. And this part of the passage reminds us Christ is totally qualified and capable of giving the most excellent, amazing gifts to whomever he chooses. And those gifts are given to those who serve with him. We're serving with him. In his triumph and position as head of the church, Christ supplies all of the needs of all of his people. Paul then goes on, and he describes some specific people he has gifted to the church. Verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. We could spend three or four weeks on that portion. So I'm going to cut this a little bit. So if you're going, well, you didn't talk about You'll understand why. The first gift that, that Paul says Christ gave to the church were the apostles. That's listed first. Apostle literally means one sent on a mission. The 12 apostles laid the foundation of the church along with Christ. They received and proclaimed the revelation of God, which, which then became Scripture. Their position was confirmed through signs and wonders, miracles. The most fundamental use of, of apostle in the New Testament is of the twelve, including Matthias, who replaced Judas. And it also includes Paul, who is uniquely set apart, but still an apostle. There's another way that apostle can be used, because literally it just means one who's been sent. So uh, the church used the same idea with Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, and there's some others. And I believe that the ministry of the apostle continues. Now, in one sense, yeah, it, it ended. When those first 12 apostles ended, that office came to an end. But I believe what they did continues. And the reason I believe that is because we have the completed canon of Scripture. This, when, when somebody talks about the apostles' teaching, this is the apostles' teaching. Scripture. So their ministry continues. The next gift that Paul says that Christ gave to the churches is prophets. The ministry of the prophet was within local gatherings. They were different than the apostles. The, the prophets didn't wander around and, and, and establish new churches wherever they went, like the apostles did. The prophets spoke revelation from God, but they also expounded existing revelation from God. And they proclaimed God's revealed message and their message, their ministry was judged by the apostles. So if you, were, if you thought you were a, a prophet and you spoke something and it was wrong, the apostles would come and go, you know, you heretic. And, and so there, that was a balance that was there. Now this, this idea of prophet should not be confused with the gift of prophecy that's found in 1 Corinthians 12. That's different. That's why I can't, I'm not going to go into all that. Can you just accept that this morning? Because that's another sermon. This gift, these gifts, these two gifts, they're, they're very often called offices, ended when the writing of the New Testament was completed. Christ and these two offices 
we are told, are the foundation of the church. Paul tells us this earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There's a third gift that Paul says, speaks of, and that is the evangelist. This one, you, there's, there's some comparisons, and I think you can continue this one throughout the history of the church. The evangelist proclaims the gospel salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. The evangelist that Paul has in mind went where Christ was not known. He went places where Christ had never been. And he led people to faith in Jesus. He taught the initial basics of the word, of the scripture, and of, of Christianity, and then they moved to a new location. So they were also mobile, similar to the apostles. It's, it's, we have to be careful how much we, we relate that more of an office with the gift of evangelists in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. The next gift that Christ gives to the church Sometimes it looks like this is two. I believe this is just one. He says pastors and teachers. And I believe this is one office in the church. And, and the reason I go there is partially because of the grammar. That's one way, and, and you could see that grammar. Okay, that's not the best way. But if I use this verse and I let Scripture interpret Scripture, so I go to um, uh, 1 Timothy, you, you can see where, where the pastors are teaching. And so the grammar that is used here in, in, in Timothy, teaching seems to define pastors. Now, again, there's a whole lot more that could be said about that. What's important for us today is as we go on in verse 12 in chapter 4 of Ephesians, there is a purpose for these gifts to the church. What is that purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Saints in this context means all believers, all of those who have chosen to follow Christ. Equipping literally means fixing something or supplying what is lacking. The idea is Christ has given leaders to the church whose task is to supply what is lacking in individual believers so that they will do something. Now, let's put all this together. Christ gives gifts to each believer within the church. Every one of you are gifted by the grace of God. Some of the gifts are specific. They're specific individuals who have specific tasks, and those tasks are equipping other individual believers. Now, what I really want you to grasp is what this equipping is all about. Paul says, equipping the saints for the work of service. Why the equipping? For the work of service. The saints do the work of service. And in this context and in many others, the word service and ministry are synonymous. There is no way even the most gifted pastor or group of pastors can do everything a church must do. The, the first church that I served as a senior pastor in began with a group of people. You know, it was, it was fantastic. We had 21 people on the first day I was there. Seven of them were my family. 
Was it any easier then? In some respects, I have to go, yeah, it was, because most of the time, if I was doing correction, it was only to Peter, my son. Don't put the paper clip in the outlet. No, what? Ugh. Everywhere I've gone, I've realized that church grew to be over 70 people on a regular basis on Sunday mornings. I'm good for really working with 80, 85 people. And as I get older, sometimes I wonder. (laughs) One guy can't do it. A group can't do it. The reason is God didn't design it that way. It's not my job to do everything. When the woman calls me up, this happened at the church in Colorado. She calls me up and I've been, I've been sharing with my neighbor. I've been sharing with my neighbor. And she's just asking all kinds of questions. Oh, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. Would you come get her saved? And it's like, A, I don't even know where you live. And B, just share Jesus with her. God will bring her into the kingdom. You, you're the one who's supposed to do the ministry. I try to help her understand that. I, I'm not the only one. My purpose is to build you up and send you out and and have you do ministry. That's the equipping. If you're following Christ, you're to be doing the work of ministry. No believer can say, "I'm, I'm only in the body of Christ to be a spectator. This is one of the biggest days of spectating on the planet, in our society, in our day and age, there's nothing bigger than the, than the Super Bowl, right? So there's going to be thousands, millions of people tuned in to watch this game. So what's the ratio between spectators and participants? This work of equipping the saints is also not an end to itself. I'm preaching you today to cause you to be equipped. I'm operating in, the, in, a, in a gift that God has given me. I love doing this. This is, this is the highlight of my life as a pastor is preaching. I love it. But I love it even more when it actually can be taken and I can see it working out in someone's heart or somebody's life. Because what I want, what I desire, I sit over here or I stand over here and we're worshiping, we're singing, and, and a lot of times I quit singing or I change the words to the songs because I'm praying and I'm asking God to transform hearts so that we become the body of Christ. This is a dangerous time that we're in. We need a strong church. And to have a strong church, y'all need to be in ministry. You need to be serving. We need to be loving one another, caring about it. That's why I do what I do. Back in Ephesians 4, Paul goes on, verse 13, and he, he identifies that goal. He's he's continuing to to give us the idea of why these individual gifts have been given. It says, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I had about six different ways I could go from here, and here's where I went. I believe the church has missed the point when it comes to this part of understanding the church. And we've come to a place where we have two competing views within the church. And it centers around what Jesus told the church to do. He said, go make disciples. We'll start there, and that's the the basic phrase. 
There's more to it, teaching them. Okay, I got that. Go make disciples, though, is where the church seems to have this, this rift. One uh, side of this rift is go make disciples means believers are principally to be concerned with discipleship. And the way the church has typically, especially in the West, in the United States, in Western civilization, has defined discipleship is the transference of knowledge. If you just transfer enough knowledge to somebody, they get it. Knowing doctrine, understanding scripture, and applying this knowledge to the believer's everyday life. That's discipleship. So we've got one group that's doing that. That's the way they see that. The other group sees go and make disciples as going into the world, proclaiming the gospel and bringing converts to the church. And I I want to make sure that you understand, I, I use the term, I almost forgot the word, converts. Nowhere are we to make converts. The problem has become, which one's more important? Is it more important for me to have people come to Christ, or is it more important for me to teach people what it means to be in Christ? And I think this is just, it just irritates me. This is not what God intended. It's not what Jesus meant when he told us to go. We're to go, and we're to, the first thing he says is, go make disciples. And what would have been understood in the first century when Jesus spoke that was that a disciple was a person who has been been called by a master. And they begin to follow that master. And the intention of those that are called is to become exactly like the master. That's what the word would have been understood as. Go Go make people follow Jesus with the intention of being just like Jesus. There shouldn't be this struggle between passing on knowledge and information, and evangelism. That's not what God intends. Paul also tells us that every believer is to attain the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and maturity. Every believer is to be like Christ. This is what Paul means by the fullness of Christ. Think about it. When Jesus called his disciples, they left everything and followed their master. And in those, those, those years of following Jesus, they watched and they learned. And what, did they, what did they watch and learn? They watched as the greatest possible evangelist drew people to himself. People came to a saving knowledge of the Son of God. They understood him as the Messiah, the Savior. My mind kept going to to Zacchaeus, because he's short. He's he's up in the tree because he couldn't see, and Jesus comes along. And and by the way, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He was the scum of the earth in that society. There was hardly any other person that was hated more than a tax collector. And here's this short tax collector sitting up in a tree, and Jesus comes along and evangelizes him. Zacchaeus is transformed and is saved, and and the the story is really amazing. So the the disciples are seeing this. There's many others. The disciples followed Jesus, and 
They were recipients of discipleship. Jesus taught them many things. He taught that whole gathering of people, the Sermon on the Mount and all the other things that God did, that Jesus did. One of the things he taught the disciples, remember? He says, he says to them, pray then like this. He's teaching them to pray. Our Father, hallowed be thy name. That's discipleship. So we have the master that we're all to be like, and he's doing both things at the exact same time. He's evangelizing and he's discipling. Evangelism and discipleship were never intended to be separate. Jesus taught the disciples the incredible truth. He was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So that the disciples would go out and tell everybody, We found the, we found the Messiah! And then the end result of that is, okay, so, so now you, you've, you've shown me the Messiah. Now what? Well, here, I'm going to teach you all about who the Messiah is and what it means to be saved so that you will go out and be so excited about who he is, you're going to tell other people about it. The two have to be together. As the disciples followed Christ, they evangelized and discipled. Even before the disciples were filled with the Spirit, God sent them out to minister. He sent them out to do the ministry. People came to Christ. People grew in their knowledge of the Messiah. And then after Christ ascended to heaven and the church age began, the church began to do exactly the same thing. People got saved. Didn't they? What does that mean? People recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. The Savior. They said, I'm going after Him. They chose Him to be their master. And they gathered with other believers and they learned more of the details of what Christ accomplished. And, and because of that, they then also went out and proclaimed the gospel to other people. The problem is if we only focus on transferring knowledge about Christ as our understanding of go make disciples... We are missing half of what we are to be doing, and our discipleship is really of little value. If we only understand go make disciples as making converts, our evangelism is of little value. Evangelism and discipleship must be passionately pursued together. And so when I talk about serving the church, I'm talking about us, the body of Christ, doing both. I am not the evangelist. I've got two brothers in the Lord. One of them's gone home to be with Jesus. But these two guys, they're evangelists. They are, they are scary evangelists. I don't reach across the car and reach and grab a hold of the gal at McDonald's, take her hand and pray for her and have her come to Christ. All I wanted was my egg McMuffin. The contest that day, I've told you about that. Okay, Wolfie, you, you witness on this ride, I'll witness on the next one. He got unbelievers all day long and several people came to Christ on the chairlift. I got backslidden Christians, missionaries home on leave, leaders in the church. All day long, it was like that. I didn't get to share Jesus one time in an entire day. He, every single time he rode, he got an unbeliever and they, they just... Well, they're trapped, so that you know you either believe you know. the two go together. I love to share my faith. 
I love to sit in my office and, and help people sort out what it means to be a believer too. I love to do that. If you aren't sharing your faith, if you aren't so compassionate and so overwhelmed with giving people Jesus, you have a problem with your Christianity. And at exactly the same time, if you're not willing to take somebody who's a brand new believer and start sharing with them what it means, you got a problem. This is not a spectator sport. This is becoming more and more real and more and more important. We are sliding really rapidly to the end of the age when Jesus is going to come back. And there are people around us every day. We are surrounded people who are dead, according to Ephesians. And they need Jesus. They need Jesus. And when they find Jesus, we need to be able to give them the truth about what it means to be a Christian so they get so, so overwhelmed with the truth of the gospel that they can't, with, they can't hold it in. And so they go preach. They go proclaim. They go declare. You know, do you realize what Jesus has done for me? I get frustrated with believers who refuse to be teachable. And do not see the value of preaching and teaching classes and whatever. I, I get equally frustrated with believers who don't share their faith. The reality is, is that after five years of coming to Christ, most believers do not have any unsaved friends. We are surrounded by people going to hell. Does that matter to you? You know, Pastor, I'm not an evangelist. That's my gift. I don't care. Sorry. The gift God gives to the church are to build the body of Christ, which involves two things. It's not two things because you're going to do one of them and, and you're going to do the other. You are part of the body of Christ. You may do better at one than another. I sometimes tease people, you know, man, I'm ha- I did it with Tim this morning. I-, I don't know if I'm up to preaching today. You want to preach, brother? And he goes, man, panic. Okay. I love doing this. There's times evangelism is tough. One of the things I like to do when I evangelize is sitting on an airplane. They can't go anywhere. Chairlifts were the same thing. And then I got to suck it up and I got to get past my fear and go, hey, do you realize what Jesus is? Do you have a relationship with Christ? You know, whatever. I do both. And I will continue to do both. We live in a time when this church has to do both. And by church, I mean every one of us. Some of you, God will use more in evangelism, some of you, God will use more in discipleship. These two work together, and they, wouldn't, they should not be separated. When they work together, the church is strengthened. And in this day and age and in this time, the goal of where I'm at as your pastor is, we need this church to be stronger and stronger and stronger. We need to attract people to the kingdom of God. Not make converts, attract people to the kingdom of God. And we need to help build them up so that they will also then go and find converts. No, 
find people to become a part of the kingdom of God. We need to do both to be strong. You do the ministry. If you haven't shared your faith, I challenge you this week. You figure it out and you share your faith with somebody. It's simple. You find somebody and whatever the circumstances are and you get yourself prayed up a little bit and you go, hey, have you, have you heard about Jesus? Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me. And you just tell them what Christ means to you. Whether they come to Christ or not is not your responsibility. That's God's responsibility. Your responsibility is to minister. Go. Go be the church. As a part of our fellowship then, let's fellowship by remembering the great evangelist and the great discipler our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that on the cross you died for every sin. I thank you that you are the great advocate for each one of us who follow you. I ask, Father God, that you'd help us to remember the work. Fill us to overflowing. Holy Spirit, fill us to overflowing that we, we don't just remember it on Sunday morning, but we remember it on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and, and every other day of the week that you have given us eternal life through your Son. Stir us up, Father God, to do ministry in the church and out of the church. Thank you, Father that you've placed us in fellowship. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your Son. The last night that Jesus was with his disciples, he broke bread and he dispersed that. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Father, I thank you that you have all things under control and that we can have a great deal of assurance because of that. Guard us, Father, that in our assurance we don't become complacent and lazy. Give us compassion for those who who are outside of the body of Christ, who who desperately need the Savior. Use us to rescue those who are dead and in darkness. I thank you, Father God, that you made this all possible through your Son. We remember that night, that same night, just before he went to the cross, enduring all of our sins. He took a cup and, and he described that cup as the, the cup of the new covenant. Covenant, agreement between God and, and man. This is the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink. Father, thank you that you have not left us here 
as mere spectators. But you have caused us to be a part of the body of Christ, vitally needed in the ministry, the continuing presentation of the gospel and and the reality of the kingdom of God. I ask, Father God, that by your power, you would use each individual believer here this morning to further your gospel. Thank you, Father God, for your word. Thank you for other believers. Thank you for the church. Strengthen us in Christ. Strengthen this fellowship in Christ's name. Amen.